Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 19, Dead Web Page Society. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Putt what we putt. Spend 15 minutes a day hating who we spend 15 minutes a day hating. And today I'm going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 6, Dead Putting Society, which first aired in the US on November the 15th, 1990. And I'm going to be talking about the World Wide Web, with the first web page being written around the time Dead Putting Society was first aired. And thanks to the World Wide Web, we can say with aplomb, if you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. We're back! We are. But before we go any further, it would be amiss of me to not be pedantic enough to say that you don't need the World Wide Web to email us. There will be there will be some nerd out there. <laughs> they, they can't they, they mixed up the World Wide Web with email. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we are back. And sorry about the two week delay. But uh, you remember back when we recorded a show around Christmas, saying that I was going to move house. I finally moved. <laughs> yeah. So we were meant to move with about a week's notice. So obviously couldn't record that week, and we were set to record. The week after that, but um, my kitchen flooded, so uh, <laughs> had to get a plumber and an electrician out. So, so here we are now. Yes, I thought it was just about a good enough excuse that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So happy new house. Yes, um, thank you. Before we move on to our uh, main business of the day, uh, I've got a couple of things to promote. So between recordings for us, uh, I've done another episode of Tim Worthington's masterpiece of a podcast, Looks Unfamiliar. And it's a special to promote his new book, The Lark's Ascending, about comedy on Radio 3, which itself is a follow-up to his previous book, Fun at One, which was about comedy on Radio 1. Probably didn't have to say that second bit. <laughs> but anyway, the book, and indeed the podcast episode, cover such subjects as Chris Morris, Peter Cook, Armando Iannucci, the National Theatre of Brent, spoof documentaries, and the ongoing attempts to get an episodic sitcom established on Radio 3. If you'd like to buy the book, it should be available by the time this podcast goes out through Lulu for paperbacks, and it's also available on Kindle. All the info should be available at timworthington.org. And if you'd like to listen to me and Tim discussing the book, that should also be available at this stage, and you can find that at timworthington.org slash looksunfamiliar. I also recommend listening to the last two episodes featuring actor Paul Putner and juggler Gillian Kirby, as they were excellent. Mm. And in more podcast news... Friends of this podcast, Ben Baker and Phil Catterall, have launched a great one called Don't Let's Chart, which is described thusly. Two men in their 30s, confused and terrified by the world around them, try to make sense of it through the use of charts, top ten lists and mindless trivia. Or, at the very least, while away another half hour before the grave. Join them, won't you? And I certainly recommend that you do. That's on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and a whole mess of other things that's reminded me I need to get signed up to more different stuff. Yes, we do. Uh, yes. You can find us on Stitcher, Apple, our, our own website, and nothing else at the minute. That's all right. Um, 
The production number of this episode was 7F08, and the US viewership was a Nielsen of 14.3, which is equivalent to 13.3 viewing households. No, that's not true. 13.3 million, surely. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> The production number was 7F08, and the US viewership was a Nielsen of 14.3, which was equivalent to 13.3 million viewing households. I was going to say, 13.3 households. We get more listeners than that. <laughs> barely. Barely. <laughs> it's that 0.7 to make up to 14. Um, it was the 35th highest rated show of the week overall, and the highest rated show on the Fox Network for the week. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one at that stage? Right, who can we offend this week? Oh, oh, I mean, this is... The fact that I've had to wait four weeks to do this one, it's just, <laughs> it's just been festering in me. Festering, it really has. So the number one is still Unchained Melody. Right. So remember, we're in the land of the long-term number ones here, so who knows if it will shift for next time. Oh, yeah. At the very least, we've got a new song at number two, but it's not a good one. To the extent that I'm actually pretty glad we put this off a bit. But my golden weeks are behind me, and the fickle finger of fate points me once more to my more dreadful task. Go on. Suffice it to say, I wish I was talking about almost anything else in the charts, which included... <gasps> in Spiral Carpets, Belinda Carlisle, Happy Mondays, The Lars, Prince, The Cure, EMF, Bobby Vinton, The Mission... Kylie Minogue, N.W.A., and even Aha, Aha, with the immense crying in the rain for pity's sake. <laughs> but thanks to the awful record buying habits of the British public in mid-November 1990, at number two that week, of all things, was Fog on the Tyne revisited by Linda's Fan featuring Paul Gaza Gascoigne. Oh man. Oh, what? <laughs> All those great songs and artists, and I get stuck with this atrocity against the recording industry. Cheers, guys. I hate you all. <laughs> Paul Gascoigne is a troubled national treasure who needs no introduction for UK listeners, but we do actually have listeners from elsewhere, so I will try and sum him up. He is a former England international footballer, that's soccer, of course, mm Mm-hmm who was part of the England teams that made the semi-finals of World Cup 1990 and the semi-finals of the 1996 European Championship. Remembered in the former for crying when he picked up a yellow card that would have seen him miss the World Cup final had England progressed. They didn't. Uh, and in the latter for his dentist chair goal celebration that immortalised the off-pitch carousing that was a feature of early Premier League football. Yes, yes. Should, should, should we just go over what the dentist chair was? Yes, so uh, in the celebration he uh, skidded to the floor on his back whilst uh, his teammates uh, squeezed water bottles and energy drink bottles into his mouth, mm. uh, which was uh, harking back to the dentist chair itself, which was a method of imbibing booze in much the same way that had been very publicly enjoyed by England players uh, during an international break. Yes, yes. Not not the sort of behaviour you expect from millionaire professional athletes. No. Who were meant to be representing their country. No, and to be fair, it's either cleaned up a lot or it happens a lot more in private now. Yes, yes. Which is a shame, really, because the goal he was celebrating was one of the best goals I've ever seen in an international football game. It was good. Really? I enjoyed that tournament. I yeah. must say, uh, there was a lot of good stuff going on, not just in the England matches either. Gascoigne played club football in England, Scotland and Italy for Newcastle United, Tottenham Hotspur, Lazio, Glasgow Rangers and Middlesbrough. 
but he was almost better known for his partying and binge drinking, and as such has had terrible struggles with alcoholism and addiction after his career finished, along with a bizarre tangential appearance in the 2010 standoff between gunman Raoul Moat and the Northumbria police. Yeah, but... <laughs> Are we going to go into more details with that? Because that was just that was so weird. I'm not actually going to go into more detail on that because okay, fair enough. Um, I I was looking into it, and it's so bizarre as to be relatively unrelatable. Yeah, yeah. There was there was talk of fishing rods and KFC. I don't yeah, know that much. Yeah. But that incident in itself has pretty much become a meme. Whenever there's anything like weird and panicky going on, like. Like like Brexit, for example, someone will say, "Oh, don't worry, Paul Gascoigne's turned up with a fishing rod and some KFC." Yes, yeah. So you know the the kind of the impact that he's made on British public life and British popular culture is is immense. Mm. Um, for barely his entire adult life, he's been a genuine cross media celebrity. Barely out of the papers even today. So it's perhaps not as strange as it seems that he released a single. After all, Chris Waddle and Glenn Hoddle had released the fantastic Diamond Lights in 1987, and football teams regularly released singles for cup final appearances, major tournaments, and league wins. Even, in the case of Sunderland, promotion to the First Division. Wow. Okay, I didn't know that. If you've never heard Sunderland are back in the First Division, that's definitely <laughs> worth uh, worth listening to. Particularly for, the, there's a line where they, they name a lot of kind of top teams, like kind of Liverpool, Manchester United, and then they say, we'll be waiting for you. <laughs> Which is clearly untrue, because they've been in the first division the whole time, and you're coming back to it. Yeah. They're yeah. waiting for you. Well, oh. sure, well, well, surely the best football song is um, the England one that, that New Order did. Oh, World in Motion is, yeah. World in Motion, that's it's, the one. It's so superior to all other uh, football songs as to be Untouchable, essentially. Yeah, it's, pretty it, much. It do, just doesn't get in the same bracket, yep. really. Yep. Um, so, that then, all of that was about Paul Gascoigne. Yes. His collaborators, Linda's Farm, aren't nearly as interesting. <laughs> From Newcastle, formed in 1968 under original name Brethren, they're a folkish, rockish type band. Yeah. Fog on the Time was taken from their 1971 album, Fog on the Time. The album reached number one, but the track hadn't charted until the revisited version came along. Mm -hmm. And here it is, coming along now. <laughs> or then. To ruin my day. Now. <sighs> anyway, the writer of this episode was Jeff Martin, another Harvard attendee to the surprise of no one. Hmm. This is his first credited episode, but we will hear from him again. And outside of The Simpsons, he wrote for Listen Up, Baby Blues and Homeboys in Outer Space as well as Late Night with David Letterman. On the latter show, he invented the character of Flunky the Viewer Male Clown, who is described as a depressed, chain-smoking clown who spent more time discussing his infected tattoo and prostate woes than the reader male he was there to address. <laughs> the character seems to have a minor cult following, so cheers, Jeff. Good work. In terms of highlights from his other episodes, we get three men in a comic book later this season... Plus, I Married Marge and Lisa's First Word. So two flashback episodes. Mm -hmm. And Homer's Barbershop Quartet, which I now realise is actually another flashback episode. Well, yeah. Um, so that seems to be a specialism. He left the writing staff after season five, but later rejoined and is credited with scripts from seasons 27 and 28. Wow, okay. But now finally on to the episode. Let's get the, get the taste of Linda's farm out of my mouth. <laughs> 
The chalkboard gag is, I am not a 32-year-old woman. And the couch gag is the family being joined by their pets, Snowball 2 and Santa's Little Helper. I see, I see. Before we go any further, just to clear things up, the I am not a 32-year-old woman is a reference to Nancy Cartwright, isn't it? Oh, I didn't think of it that way. I assume that's what it was. I'm assuming that they weren't putting Bart through some sort of... Uh, gender dysphoria back then. I was wondering whether he had committed some kind of male fraud or similar, perhaps in Mrs. Krabappel's name. No, I, I, I well, I just assumed that it's Nancy Cartwright. So, ah, okay. Well, there we go. Two in universe. Uh, well, one in universe. One better explanation for the the, the chalkboard gag there. Fair enough. Fantastic. So, as we join our favourite family, Homer is filling in for Bart mowing the lawn. Bart has got out of this by dint of having to prepare a science project, which appears to consist of him observing a potato to see whether it turns into something other than a potato when not exposed to any unusual circumstances or forces whatsoever. It's important research. It's also a potato with an E. Perhaps another Dan Quayle reference? Ooh, I didn't, I didn't spot that one. Nice one. Ned Flanders appears from next door to offer Homer some help with his numerous patches of crabgrass. Homer is dismissive, but when he discovers there's no beer in his house, he takes Flanders up on an invite to join him in his well-appointed rumpus room, wherein he has poured a Dutch lager. Mm. I assume a Heineken, though other Dutch lagers are available. And to be honest, it's not one of the ones I'm keen on myself. Well, I'd like to know why they chose Holland for the origin of his lager, because you assume that Flanders doesn't drink, because he's he's a pure living Christian, but... I remember Red Dwarf from roughly that time made a made a joke about Dutch lager hmm. when they when they say we've recycled the urine so much it's beginning to taste like Dutch lager. Ah, okay. Well, Flanders obviously you'd think is a bit more Flemish. Would it be Belgian lager he was more interested in? But uh... yeah, you'd have thought so. But but they don't really do they don't really do lager on tap. No, in no. Belgium everything's in a bottle. True. True enough. Oh, there's Grolsch too, of course. Uh, now, that's good for the red rubber rings under the bottle tops. Oh, yes. So you buy a couple of them, get them, and then you can hold your guitar strap on. <laughs> nice. Homer drinks into his surroundings, the idyllic relationships Ned enjoys with his wife and sons, and perhaps most importantly, more lager, and has a tantrum accusing Ned of rubbing his nose in the Flanders' successes, leading Ned to throw Homer out. Homer goes quietly with a sandwich for the long walk next door. (laughs) Afterwards, Homer remains incandescent with rage, but Ned is troubled by guilt and calls a disinterested Reverend Lovejoy for advice, who tells him that a gentle answer turneth away wrath. This leads to Ned writing an apology letter to Homer, which has the Simpsons in stitches, especially the bosom part, (laughs) of which a not-quite-yet-herself Lisa requests second airing. (laughs) Even Marge is moved to giggles, but makes the point that she envies the Flanders' closeness. Homer then offers to take the family to mini-golf and for a round of frosty chocolate milkshakes, which is a very early season thing to do. Mm. Marge and Lisa can't make it, so Homer, Bart and Maggie wend their way there. Homer's not exactly Jack Nicholson, but Bart shows some aptitude for putting, and they encounter Ned and Todd at the course. Bart and Todd see a sign for an upcoming tournament, though Bart seems more interested in the free balloon for entry than the prospects of winning. Homer sees an opportunity to one-up Flanders and guarantees a Bart victory, quoting the following justification, because sometimes the only way you can feel good about yourself is by making someone else look bad, 
and I'm tired of making other people feel good about themselves. <laughs> Homer's training regime is ineffective, including 15 minutes of hate every day. But just when Bart feels like a blockaded bishop, help comes from the unlikely source of Lisa, who teaches Bart inner peace and geometry, as well as how to practice on a pool table. Meanwhile, Homer talks himself into a bet with Ned. The father of the boy who does not win will mow the other's front lawn wearing their wife's Sunday dress. In the run-up to the tournament, Bart receives contradictory advice from Lisa and Homer on everything from putting to breakfast, but comes through to meet Todd in the final. As the overdramatic announcer immortalises their every move, it comes down to the last shot in the last hole, where a tense Bart and Todd decide to declare it a draw, unwittingly causing both fathers to have to honour the bet. And even worse for Homer, Flanders enjoys it as he's reminded of the stunts from his college days. <laughs> as Lisa prepares to suppress another traumatic memory, we're done. <laughs> Excellent. I wasn't massively looking forward to this one, but it, it's turned out to be an episode with uh, hidden depth. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I like any episode which has, which has a bit of a focus on Lisa. Would you like to hear about some uh, relatively predictable character debuts in this one? Mm-hmm. It's not a debut, as he's been here before, but Todd Flanders is featured heavily in this episode. It's the, the most heavily he's been featured to date, and probably for a little while as well. He's the youngest son of Ned and Maud Flanders, although apparently even that is in slight doubt due to some slapdash early continuity. Mm-hmm. Todd is an annoying little milk toast who is highly religious and goody-goody, and whose sheltered, pat boonish upbringing makes him highly likely to become a mass shooter in late life. <laughs> and no, he doesn't want any damn vegetables. <laughs> But there's two other Flanderses here who we genuinely haven't seen before. You have uh, Ned's wife Maud, played by Maggie Roswell, and his elder son, well, given the caveat I mentioned a second ago anyway, Rod Flanders, who is voiced by Pamela Hayden. Rod is essentially the same as Todd, although he does have a memorable line about being jealous of girls because they get to wear dresses, which suggests he may be transgender. This plays into the portrayal of future versions of Rod and Todd in flash-forward episodes, in which they are invariably shown as gay or transgender. Hmm. Maud doesn't get to have much of a character, but she seems, if anything, even more uptight than Ned. The character meets a sticky end, which I don't think is too much of a spoiler, given there's now been more seasons of The Simpsons after it than happened before. Yeah. And her death has always been a sore point with Simpsons fans, with it also appearing as part of a terrible run of episodes during season 11. Mm-hmm. Worth noting that not long before the character was written out, Maggie Roswell left the voice cast due to being turned down for a pay rise and the tremendous amount of travelling she was having to do. Not three years after she left, Maggie was brought back, having reached an agreement to record her lines closer to home. So a bit of a short-sighted decision there. Though for at least the first 20 seasons, any showrunner seemed to be convinced that the current season would be the last and there was no way they were getting renewed. So I can see how that might not have been too much of a concern. Mm. Ned deserves a quick word here too as he's really off character this is the first time we've spent this much time with him and whilst he definitely has some of the traits we'll come to know him for he's also quick to anger, easily provoked and refers to stunts in his college days which really doesn't feel right for him no, no, but one of the things I like about this episode is that they give Ned Flanders a bit of character development and 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 they push him they put him in a situation where he's where he's genuinely stressed, and he cracks, and he then realizes what he's done. So, so, so yeah, I, I, it's one of the reasons why I really like this episode, actually. 
True enough. And there is a call, but well, a call forward at this stage uh, to his uh, later behaviour when he rings Reverend Lovejoy for the first time for advice. Um, <laughs> however, the advice actually works this time, and I yeah. believe it will be the only time it does. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was very strange. <laughs> So it, it's difficult for me to kind of uh, come to the conclusion that Ned isn't the Ned we know yet. And it's difficult in retrospect to see these characters develop. Because um, I have preconceptions of them, born of later versions of the character. Um, and Ned, Rod and Todd are most often used in later seasons to poke fun at the foibles of organised religion. Uh, and to be fair, to highlight some of its more charitable aspects. But at this stage, they're just the neighbours you love to hate. Mm. They're, they're the Joneses you're trying to keep up with. Um, and Homer's rant at the start of the episode, whilst he is over the top and he is having a tantrum, it, it sums it up perfectly. They seem to be doing so much better than The Simpsons under similar circumstances. Mm-hmm. And Homer's become so embittered about it that he can't see the little factors, like Ned's diligent approach to work and life and his ability to actually save money. And he therefore just thinks Ned is, is unreasonably lucky, um, mm. or that he is unreasonably unlucky. Um, mm. And it's, it's making him bitter as a result. Yeah, yeah. Mind you, you can tell that the Flanders are doing very well because their house is pretty much a TARDIS. It is, yes. <laughs> it's because they have their rumpus room, which is the size of a football pitch, and and there's a shot uh, in their bedroom, and it's the size of the palace. Yeah, it's... Uh, it is it's actually... Quite something. That I just, just noticed that for the first time today. They, they cut from... Homer complaining about how much better... Homer complaining to Marge after the argument about how much better Flanders has it to their bedroom with a four-poster bed. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I, I thought that was, a, that was a pretty clever choice, actually. Um, you've noted the other debut, which is Ned's very well-appointed rumpus room. Mm. Uh, we'd later get to see that in a number of different roles, from the headquarters of the Neighbourhood Watch in Season 5, Episode 11, Homer the Vigilante, to a brainwashing deprogramming room in Season 9, Episode 13, The Joy of Sect, right through to the clubhouse of the Hell Satan's Motorcycle Club in Season 11, Episode 8, Take My Wife Sleaze. Mm. So we'll be having some good times in the rumpus room, as as I assume will Ned going mm. forward. Would you like some did you knows? Yes, please. Ned's very out-of-character cry of Mercy is for the Weak and Bart's crane starts his training montage are both references to the 1984 film The Karate Kid. Ah, right. Which recently there's been a, uh, a spin-off series of called Cobra Kai uh, on, is it YouTube Red? The, the sort of, like paid-for YouTube. Oh, the premium you YouTube thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I've not, I've not seen it, but everybody says it's really good. I okay. wouldn't mind seeing it, but I'm not paying for it. So uh, I've not seen The Karate Kid all the way through. I wouldn't bother, really. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's something about painting a fence and catching the flies with chopsticks. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah, you, you don't need to see anymore. Um, uh, Ned's speed dial features Reverend Work, Reverend Home, Recycling Plant, and Bookmobile. <laughs> and finally... This is more of a did you know for the audience because we've already discussed this and I've realised that you do know it. But um, Bart's putter being named Charlene by Homer is a reference to the name of the rifle carried by Private Pyle, a character played by Vincent D'Onofrio in the 1987 film Full Metal Jacket. Mm. Said character also says the line 7.62mm Full Metal Jacket, thus bringing us that most delicious of cinematic treats, the name of the movie 
in the movie. Yes, yes. You've always got to cheer when you hear that, which made that time <coughs> I went to see Secrets and Lies a bit <laughs> awkward. Although you've, you've, you've just made it very obvious that you've not seen the movie because when he says Full Metal Jacket, you are doing anything but cheering. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 are, yeah, you are absolutely terrified at that point. It, 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 he's, he's, almost, he's almost monstrous towards the end of the first half. Yeah, it's really quite something. Yes, it's the other thing we've found out about each other tonight is that I haven't seen Full Metal Jacket. So if you want to give out to me about that, it's at underscore retrospecticus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You need to see Full Metal Jacket. I'm not 100% convinced that I need to see The Karate Kid. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like there's a, there's a bit of a challenge there for both of us. But, mm. um, but before we go away to our respective films, uh, you have an event from history to tell us about. I do, I do. So I'm going to be talking about the... Invention of the World Wide Web, essentially. So you may have seen people on Twitter using the hashtag webat30 to talk about the 30th anniversary of the World Wide Web. So I'm going to be giving my version of the story and maybe debunk a few misconceptions too. So first off, the idea of linking computers in a network over phone lines was nothing new. In fact, I've already gone over the origins of the internet in episode 3, The Morris Worms Odyssey. So have a listen to that if you want to hear a bit more about the early days of the internet and the difference between the internet and the World Wide Web. Yes, which I clearly didn't remember earlier. (laughs) It's all right, I only work extensively in IT. Right, right. So the one-sentence version of this story is Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web at CERN. Now, there's a lot packed into that short sentence, so let's break it down. So first off, what is CERN? So nowadays it's famous for being the home of the Large Hadron Collider, a huge physics experiment that includes a 26-mile ring buried underneath France and Switzerland, responsible for the discovery of the Higgs boson, the so-called God particle. But what surprises me about this story is how the CERN bit is just a given. You know, Tim Berners-Lee invented the web at CERN, and I I always think, what, CERN? What, the nuclear research place? Well, what's, what's that got to do with the web? Well, let me tell you. So first, Gareth, are you at all familiar with the world of quantum physics, bosons, quarks, the standard model, all that stuff? If you have absolutely no follow-up questions, yes. Yes, I am. (laughs) I've tried to understand it, and I did a a degree in biochemistry, and I remember doing a module on it. And by the time I'd finished, I had a sort of vague understanding of how hydrogen worked, but that was about it. So I remember going to a talk by a guy called Jeff Forshaw, and he's a professor of theoretical physics, and he's written several, you know, popular science books as opposed to academic science books. I was going to say he sounded familiar. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's written them with Brian Cox. Ah, right. You know, TV's very own billions and billions of stars, Brian Cox. Maybe. In space, massive and whatnot. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So Jeff Forshaw, he started his talk by saying, think of a single particle still in a vacuum, so not moving, no motion, absolutely nothing else. What does classical physics tell you that it does? And the audience went, well, just stays there forever. Nothing happens to it. And Jeff said back to us, right, quantum physics tells you that it goes everywhere in the universe all at once. And I just wanted to throw my hands up and go, right, no, done. <laughs> what do you mean? What are you talking about? So is quantum physics essentially, like, is it, is it just Barbie? It is. It is. 
but it works. So how does it work? I don't know. I don't know. From 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 what I understand, it just follows the rules of science really, really well. People go, well, okay, if things are quantized and this stuff happens, then if we do this mad experiment, then we should get this utterly balmy result. And they do the experiment and they get the utterly balmy result. So they go, well, well, there we are. So it must work like that then. Or at least that is the best description of what we've got. So, yeah. Brilliant. Can we, can we just take a minute to say how fantastic science is? <laughs> I love science. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, CERN. Right, so the origins of CERN go back to 1952. Europe was still recovering from the devastation of World War II and the Iron Curtain had come down, but amongst the democratic countries, the seeds of unity were being sown. So while the signing of the Treaty of Rome was still five years away, 12 countries, including Tito's Yugoslavia, weirdly enough, Hmm. got together to form the Conseil European pour la Recherche Nucléaire. And I can't speak French, so hopefully I've got that right. Uh, So in English, it's the European Council for Nuclear Research, otherwise known by the catchy acronym CERN. Now, but what's slightly odd about the name is that the council bit was only meant to apply when it was being built. And after the facilities were up and running, it would then be known as the organisation instead. So officially, it should be known as the Organisation Européenne pour la Recherche Nucléaire, giving it the rather awkward acronym UERN. But they had a big meeting, and the chief scientist asked everyone, do you want to call it CERN or UERN? I was saying UERN. Yeah, exactly. And there, was, and, and there was just one old physicist in the corner going, I was calling it UERN. <laughs> so anyway, even though it's officially UERN, everyone still calls it CERN, because that's a much cooler name. Right. So, over the years, huge amounts of scientific work was done at CERN. They specialised in particle accelerators. Speaking as a layman... My understanding is that you get a bunch of particles, use magnets to whip up their speed, have them going really, really fast in opposite directions around a ring, and then you bash them together and you detect what comes out. Why I've had it described to me, it's a bit like if you get a watch and you hit it with a hammer and you might get some stuff, cogs, whatever, you get a bigger hammer and you hit it even harder and you get more stuff come out and you can sort of analyse how the watch works. You won't have a watch, but anyway. CERN has produced a few Nobel Prize winners. In 1984, Carlo Rubia and Simon van der Meer were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for their contributions to the work that led to the discovery of the W and Z bosons. Please don't ask me what they are. And later, in 1992, George Charpak was awarded the same prize for his invention and development of particle detectors. And he'd been working on them since the... 60s, so that's one of those you know long term sort of life contribution Nobel Prizes. Always nice when one of those pays off. Mm, yes, so in 1989, CERN switched on the Large Electron Positron Collider. So, as the name suggests, it was a large piece of apparatus designed to smash electrons and their positively charged counterparts, positrons, together. It was a circular collider with a circumference of 27 kilometers and it was built 100 meters underground. And it was in both France and Switzerland. In fact, it was the forerunner to the Large Hadron Collider. So the Large Electron-Positron Collider, or LEP for short, it was dismantled in 2001, and the tunnel it was in was used for the LHC. They just made a bigger tunnel. Oh, okay. And the collisions from the LEP produced huge amounts of data. 
especially for the time. The scientists at CERN wanted a way to share and collaborate over computer networks, and that's where Tim Berners-Lee comes in. So like Robert Tapan Morris, again, see episode three, Tim Berners-Lee came from computing royalty. Both of his parents, Conway Berners-Lee and Mary Lee Woods, worked on the Ferranti Mark I. Demonstrated in 1951, it was the world's first commercially available computer. So Tim went to Queen's College, Oxford to study physics, graduating with a first-class BA in 1976. That's always something I've found a bit weird. Undergraduate degrees are usually BSc, you know, Bachelor of Science, or BA, Bachelor of Arts. Yeah. How is physics an art? Surely it's a science. I mean, I'm sure you can do plenty of arty, fancy things with physics, but if you're going to have a Bachelor of Science... Surely physics is a... Seems nailed on to me. Yeah, anyway. So while he was there, he made a computer out of an old TV set that he bought from a repair shop, which I think is a pretty pretty cool thing to do if you're a student. So after graduating, Tim Berners-Lee had a few programming jobs before moving to CERN as a contractor in 1980. And while there, he invented a program called Enquire. And the idea behind Enquire was to build a database of everything that was going on at CERN. By this time, it had about 10,000 researchers, all in this one location just outside Geneva. And a big problem at the time was that the different researchers used different equipment, different hardware, and different software. Enquire, however, was portable and it ran on different systems. Users were able to click on links between the pages. So in many ways, Enquire can be seen as the precursor to the World Wide Web. His initial spell as a contractor at CERN ran for six months in 1980. In 1984, he returned as a fellow, which is a permanent position. Throughout the latter half of the 80s, various technologies became available, which made the web possible. There was the domain name system, or DNS, which is the phone book for the internet. And what that does is that uh, turns a domain, say retrospecticus.org, it takes that domain and it maps it to an IP address. So it's an internet protocol address, which is a series of numbers, essentially. And each server is assigned an IP address. So DNS was there. Uh, there was also hypertext. The concept of that started in the 50s, but um, hypertext is text that contains hyperlinks, which allows you to link between different documents. And it also worked out Transmission Control Protocol, or TCP, which is a protocol to re- which is a protocol to reliably send data between applications over a network. So all that stuff is already there. Mm. On the twelfth of March, nineteen eighty nine, Tim Berners Lee submitted a memorandum to the CERN management team called Information Management: A Proposal, and in it he mapped out his idea for what was to become the World Wide Web, even though at the time it was called Mesh. The management team accepted it, and he set to work on it. And this day is recognised as the birth of the web, even if it is just the planning approval stage. Okay. So we're still a fair way on from it actually working. So just before Dead Putting Society was first aired, on, the, on November 12th, 1990... He got together with fellow researcher Robert Callieau to put forward another, more formal proposal that coined the term World Wide Web, although it was all one word at this point. Okay. So in this proposal, the idea of hypertext documents being provided by a server and read by a client using a browser was spelled out. I mean, 
What a horrible acronym. <laughs> well, not acronym strictly, but an abbreviation. So the World Wide Web is the only thing that I know of that has a name that has a third of the syllables of its abbreviation. It's ridiculous. World Wide Web, three syllables, WWW. In English, anyway, nine syllables. I remember listening to, to German heavy metal podcasts a few years ago. And the only bit I picked out was when they gave out a web address because they'd go, way, way, way. It's like, yeah, in German it works. It's fine. <laughs> Doesn't it in English? So anyway. So at this point, the realisation of the web was merely months away. HTML, or Hypertext Markup Language, which is the language of the web, was already in development. We still use HTML today. You go to any website, you right-click, you do View Source, you can see the HTML. So that was in development, as was HTTP, which is a hypertext transfer protocol. So a protocol for getting hypertext from server to the client. You can still see that in any web address because they all still start with HTTP. And if you want to, and if you want to wind people up, you tell people that HTTP stands for head to this place. <laughs> so Berners-Lee made the world's first browser simply called World Wide Web, you know, after the project, so simply put, the job of a browser is to request HTML from a server and render it in such a way that the user can read it. Now that the software existed, the only thing left was something to serve it. Berners-Lee set up the world's first web server on a NEXT computer that sat on his desk. That was the final piece of the jigsaw, and on December 20th, 1990, the world's first web page went live. And that page has since been lost, but it was almost <laughs> it was almost some it was almost certainly quite boring and te technical and something to do with CERN. So at first, the web was used primarily for academic purposes. So no surprises that the school at Cypress Creek has a website, which was still a novelty by 1996 standards. Of course, the web went on to be ubiquitous, and nowadays we take things like websites, e-commerce, streaming, and dare I say, podcasts for granted. And there's a very important reason for that. So after Tim Berners-Lee left CERN in 1994, he set up the World Wide Web Consortium, another terrible set of initials. <laughs> so fortunately, it's not pronounced WWWC, World Wide Water Closet. No, it's, <laughs> no, it's not called that. But W3C, which isn't much better, if you ask me. That makes it sound like there's three Cs, not three Ws. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. So the point of the W3C is to set standards for how the web works. As part of their mission statement, they intend to make the web open for all. So they're very big on accessibility. As an example, they push for technology that makes the web open for the visually impaired. So they encourage people to write websites that are compatible with screen readers, that sort of thing. Included in this accessibility is keeping all the technologies that the web relies on royalty free. So every time you read a page of HTML, be grateful to Tim Berners-Lee that you don't have to pay extra for it. I mean, could you imagine if you did? If HTML was licensed in such a way that every time you went on a web page, you owed someone a penny or something like that. It would just be so impractical. So in 2004, Tim Berners-Lee was given a knighthood for his work on the World Wide Web. In 2012, he was made a part of the opening ceremony of the London Olympics. I don't know about you, but I thought it was absolutely fantastic. So, so you have a house lifting up, revealing him sat at a desk, 
complete with an NEXT workstation. He then tweeted, this is for everyone, with the message lighting up the stadium in a lovely dual meaning. And I thought that was great because they didn't get him to do anything overly dramatic. You know, didn't get him to sing or dance or anything. We just had him at a desk doing what he does. He types a message and then he just gets up and gives everyone a round of applause. Shouldn't they have done something a bit more Olympic-y, like uh, pole vaulted or something? <laughs> well, it's, well, it's a nice idea, but I was, when that house came up revealing him, you know, I just recognised him straight away. Went, yes! Come on! <laughs> Nerds recognised! Get in! So more recently, Tim Berners-Lee has been involved in promoting net neutrality. So it's a very important concept in keeping the web open and accessible. So the idea behind net neutrality is that your internet service provider, your ISP, does not discriminate in what services it allows you to access. So if you want to access YouTube, it costs you the same as BBC News, for example. Mm. It also means that your ISP can't throttle your download speeds. And I say fight for net neutrality because it's so, so important. Absolutely. There's some important battles being fought at the moment over net neutrality, uh, censorship, mm-hmm. uh, and the Article 11 and Article 13 stuff that's uh, recently come in. Of course, how effective that is, we don't really know at the minute. Um, but I know it's going to make make life quite difficult for some of my favourite content providers. So, mm. as such, I'm keeping a close eye on that one. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, 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 well the last big thing that the EU did that affected the internet was uh, GDPR. Where, and where I work, we've had to implement GDPR. But what's impressed me is how much people have actually stuck by it. Yeah. No one's gone, ah, GDPR doesn't matter, yeah, carry on as normal. You know, because it, it's the EU, and everyone views the EU as being, you know, powerful and demanding respect. It's like the EU says jump, everyone else says how high. Yeah. It's incredible. I'm still waiting to see if uh, IOP 2 gets put in. Mm. If there's any pensions nerd li- nerds listening, <laughs> <laughs> you may have appreciated that one. Everyone else, just go about your business. <laughs> one of the unexpected benefits of GDPR is that the, there are lots of American websites which run a lot faster in Europe because they don't have GDPR in America. Ah. People load their websites with various ads which take your data without you giving permission. So they've decided to go, right, is the person viewing the website from Europe? If they are, get rid of the ads. And the web pages run so much faster. Joe always freaks me out, by the way. What's that? You go abroad, you go on BBC News, adverts. <laughs> I didn't know that. Ah, well, it's uh, certainly last time I was in America. And I think when I was in uh, Italy as well. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's it's always worth a... Worth a gander just for that alone. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Except I'll probably steal your data. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, probably. So anyway, over the course of its relatively short history, the web has changed a lot. To start with, everything was static. People would write HTML and other people would read it. It was all a bit flat. However, since the early days, efforts have been made to make the web dynamic. So in 1994, a chap called Rasmus Lerdorf wrote the first version of a language called PHP. And this is another weird acronym. So it originally stood for personal homepage because that's where Rasmus Lerdorf originally used it. But nowadays it stands for PHP Hypertext Preprocessor. Of course, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so it sort of stands for itself. 
It's really, which is really weird. Is there no one out there that can name these things properly? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. So the idea is that it sits between the initial request and the HTML. So in fact, our website, retrospecticus.org, is written in PHP. Ah. So if you want to see PHP in action, go to our website. So some web advances have come from unexpected sources. So since the early days, browsers implemented something called JavaScript. So this is a programming language, but it's on the client side. It's sort of an, in, an integral part of the browser. And it was originally used to do little fiddly, but ultimately unimportant things, you know, change colors, swap, swap images, that kind of thing. But JavaScript is integral to something called Ajax, which isn't too bad of an acronym. And it stands for Asynchronous JavaScript and XML, although the XML is just really, really forced yeah. because it doesn't need XML to work. No. I think that's a case of them wanting to make the acronym AJAX and thinking, what have we got with an X to yeah. make this sound more futuristic? Yeah, yeah. So what AJAX does is it allows web pages to make requests to the server while the web page is loaded. So the way... You web pages would work before Ajax would you would go on say page one of a new site and then it would have a link to page two you click page two and it then loads the whole website again header footer but with different stuff in the middle however if you do paging with Ajax then all you need to load is the stuff in the middle and you can keep the header and footer so it can be a lot lot faster so it speeds things up significantly and the last and latest development I want to talk about is WebSockets, just because I think it's really cool. <laughs> so since its inception, HTTP has been what's called a stateless protocol. So the client does a request to the server. The server wakes up and goes, oh, you want that page, do you? Okay, can I give you that page if you're authenticated? Uh, oh, yes, you have. There, okay, there we are. There's that page then. And then you want another page, then the process happens again. So each request takes a small but significant amount of time. WebSockets, on the other hand, are almost instantaneous. So with a WebSocket, the client doesn't necessarily request a page first, it requests a socket connection. And once it's got it, the client and the server are kind of holding hands. So they don't have to authenticate, they don't have to do a new request every time. So when the client wants something, it just says, server, give me this. And the server has, has already, it's already woken up, it's already authenticated, so it can just give it straight back. It's almost instantaneous. So once the socket is established between server and client, it persists and remains open for further requests. And on top of this, sockets are two-way. So the server is able to send stuff to the client. So sockets are therefore really fast and allow communication in close to real time. So messenger programs use them and it's, and it's why they're so fast. You're having a conversation on Facebook Messenger or whatever and stuff pops up pretty much instantly. It's because they're using WebSockets. Uh, so there we are. Uh, the web has come a long way since Tim Berners-Lee put the first website live in 1990 and no doubt the future will see even more advancements. But I had to, I had to sort of stop myself there because... Uh, because I'm talking shop, essentially. I do, <laughs> I do this sort of stuff for a living, and I thought, well, I, I can't do too much. We spoke for nearly an hour about Japan last time, so I thought I'd better, 
I better condense it down a bit. True, true. But but people have had a little while to miss us. They so, have. You know, they have. It's, uh, if we give them a hefty dose, it won't be too bad, I don't think. Yes, yes. And that's the end of our hefty dose. But I've remembered we forgot to mention someone. We forgot to mention a golf commentator. We did, yes. In fact, I've forgotten his name. Okay. So when, when uh, we were originally talking about uh, Dead Punk Society, I was having a bit of trouble doing the notes because, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, on, on rewatch, this seemed, uh, seemed like quite a good episode. But for some reason in my head, it was just kind of a bit dull and there was nothing really going on. Um, so I was struggling and uh, Tom said, of course, you're going to talk about name of person. Yeah, you're going to talk about Peter Alice for commentator. Yeah, and, and we haven't. So uh... <laughs> Yeah, because I don't know a huge amount about golf. I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of it. But even I know... The voice of Peter Alice, the golf commentator. He is to golf what Murray Walker was to Formula One. And I'd imagine that a lot of Americans are familiar with him too, hence someone doing an impersonation of him in an American show. But I know nothing about him. Gareth knows nothing about him. So if anyone would like to send us some interesting facts about Peter Alice, because I'm going to assume that there aren't any... Because he's a golf commentator and golf is quite boring. So, if you've got any Peter Alice facts, please send them to podcast at retrospecticus.org or tweet at us at underscore retrospecticus. And I've done the contact stuff instead of you, so... <laughs> well, that, that just means we can go for an even quicker goodbye. Yep, So, um, thank you very much for tuning in and uh, we'll hopefully see you a bit sooner than we did last time. Uh, providing Tom's house doesn't fall down in the meantime. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye.